morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, July 25th, we're studying Psalm 109. In the midst of false accusations from his enemies, David prays that the Lord would bring him justice. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ, as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. We have the privilege of studying Psalm 109 today. Pastor Squire, what should we know about the Psalms and any context for this Psalm in particular as we prepare to look at it? Yeah, I could you know, speak hours on just the Psalms themselves. The Psalms are just <laughs> such a treasure for the church, for God's people. Um, I'm sure that many of your listeners are aware that the Psalms find their place in the regular liturgy and worship of the church. We have the Psalms in the reading sometimes, depending on your congregation or the intro it. Uh, many of the canticles of the church and the hymns are full of the psalms, sometimes even just uh, versifications of the psalms. So the psalms are, of course, the what we might call the prayer book or the song book of the church. And they, folk, they help to focus our devotional life. So they give us words to say to God, uh, to God himself. And God himself has given us these words. But most importantly, the Psalms themselves are what we call the prayer book of Christ. And this is repeated by many theologians throughout history. So we know that the Psalms look forward to Jesus Christ. They find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But oftentimes we even find the Psalms on the lips of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels, especially we look to Jesus' passion and death, for example. But the Psalms also find themselves quoted many times throughout the New Testament. And again, to go with Jesus, Jesus himself makes clear after his resurrection in Luke 24 that not only do Moses and the prophets speak of him, but the Psalms as well. And that's going to become really important today for us to remember because when we get to these prayers and these songs that deal with some of the tougher issues in life, especially our afflictions and the interactions that we might have with enemies, to focus these prayers and these songs in Christ is what's going to bring us ultimate comfort and, like you said just a few moments ago, justice. So uh, this psalm, Psalm 109, is sometimes called an imprecatory psalm. Can you give us just an overview of what that means? Yeah, so the psalms find themselves in different categories, and you ask different theologians. They're going to give you different numbers and different types of categories. But this psalm in particular, imprecatory, basically means that what you're doing is calling for justice, but not justice in general, but specifically it's a cry of lament because of suffering especially unjust suffering and threats. And it's a call for justice, both for the one who's praying. So that is to say salvation, redemption, vindication, 
But also, and this we can't forget this, that justice has two sides. So justice has the side of vindication for the wronged person, but it also has condemnation and judgment for the person who has wronged the, the one who is praying. And so a cry for God's salvation, for God listening and acting to bring about justice, both the vindication of the one who prays and the condemnation and punishment of the one who is acting in an evil way. So, and sometimes that's kind of difficult for us to hear, I think, today. Oh, it's very difficult. I think it's probably more difficult for us to hear today than it was at any time in history, particularly because our culture is so politically correct and it is so caught up in never offending anyone. And we have this mistaken idea, I think, of what love is, of what it means to live in the kindness and the gentleness of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes this means for us that we would never say anything that offends anyone, that would be taken the wrong way. We're constantly sort of hedging against our language. But especially when it comes to enemies, one of, I think maybe for Christians, this is the, the most important reason why this is difficult, is that there's this tension between calling for justice and Jesus commanding his followers to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them. And we wonder, well, how do these two things really exist together? How can we love our enemies on the one hand and on the other hand, call for justice against them? Yeah. So I think that's going to be something we can wrestle with. And I think as you were saying, this the Psalms being centered on Christ will be the place where we can can find some, I don't know, the tension's going to stay there, I think. Yeah, but but yeah. seeing it in Christ, I think is is the key. Now, this is a, a Psalm of David, the superscription reminds us. Any idea as to when in David's life this might find some context? We can't say anything for certain. We do know, like you said, that it is written by David. It says very clearly, right there in the superscription. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we have maybe a few possibilities. So there's a couple of instances in First and Second Samuel where we can see how David is either falsely accused or betrayed by people who are close to him. So one possibility would be uh, when Doeg gives up his location uh, and ends up killing the priests of Nob. So you can find this in First Samuel 22 and 23. Another possibility might be in 2 Samuel 15 through 17, where you have David's son Absalom conspiring against him, and you have one of David's advisors, Ahithophel, who actually has become sort of this double agent with David and Absalom. And once David finds out that this is going on, things get pretty bad, and it ends with Ahithophel actually hanging himself. So it, you know, some pretty bad stuff going on. It could be something that's not listed in the scriptures. It could be another part in the scriptures. But regardless, it is David does feel the affliction of being spoken against, being betrayed, and and everything that that comes with that. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the text of Psalm 109. Again, it's to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. 
when he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted, to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening, I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, my body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers, when they see me they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that it, this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. That's Psalm 109. A lot here, Pastor Squire. It, it starts off, and there's a, a, quite a bit of contrast just in these first couple of verses. On the one hand, it's be not silent, but then God is labeled God of my praise. So it's, I don't know, it's almost, I don't know if this is saying too much, but it's almost like David's accusing God of, you're being quiet while I'm doing all the talking here, Lord. Mm. Yeah, I think there is a tension, especially in the imprecatory psalms, especially in these psalms of suffering and affliction. And you see this, I think, maybe most clearly in a place like Psalm 22, where if you look mm -hmm. through the psalm, you see David go back and forth between describing his affliction and the apparent, apparent silence and even uh, forsaking of God. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, between that and then David's faith and hope in God. And I think you see that tension in a nutshell here in verse one. So on the one hand, David's experiencing this affliction and it feels to him like God is being silent because the affliction hasn't stopped. On the other hand, he holds this together with the fact that he is still praising God, that God is his God. And even in the affliction, God is the one he's going to go to. But yeah, it, it can come off almost as, as accusatory. And this isn't the only place where David or the other psalmists really explicitly seem to accuse God of silence or inaction or being asleep 
or something to that effect. And yet, again, despite that, there's still an evident faith and hope in God. Yeah, I think I think the fact that they're willing to cry out to God in that situation indicates that it is a, a faith that they're the, the way that I've I've expressed it sometimes is they're they're holding God responsible. They know that He's responsible, and so they're they're holding Him to who He has said He is and who He's promised to be. And so it, it may sound like a a complaint, and I don't want to to soften that, but at the same time, it does come from a place of of faith, not of of hatred or something like that. Exactly. And that's, it's really important to, to hold to that because otherwise we see, yeah, there isn't a hatred of God. The fact that they are praying to God, that David is coming to God. I think Bonhaver says this well, that no matter what the psalmist is going through, there's nowhere else to go. And I think we see that uh, in Peter's words at the end of John six, everybody seems to be leaving Jesus these, these are hard words. We don't understand. We don't want to go through this. And, Pete, and J- Jesus turns to Peter and says, are you guys going to go as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's where, again, you see the faith. They don't, maybe the disciples don't understand fully, yet they know they have no better place to go. And in the same way, David is really going through a terrible time. But who else is he going to turn to? God is the God of his praise, the God of salvation. And like you said, he's calling God to account, to be faithful to what he has said he's going to do. So uh, from these first few verses of Psalm 109, what is this terrible time that David seems to be going through? I mean, we I know we talked about, maybe we can think of certain times within his life, but as he describes it here, what's he, what's he saying about his situation? The complaint seems to be against those who we might say are breaking the Eighth Commandment, among other commandments, against David, which is to say that he describes them as wicked and deceitful mouths. So people are speaking evil against him and they're lying about him. So you have speaking against me with lying tongues. And, you know, we have this this phrase in our culture, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I just, I tell people this in my congregation and and anywhere. That's just ridiculous. I mean, (laughs) words hurt. And if, if God can speak creation into existence with his might, who are we to say that somebody who's speaking against me isn't going to have a bad effect? I mean, we can say all we want that it can just bounce off me, but words hurt. Words are powerful. And certainly I'm not trying to compare our words or anybody else's words to God speaking, but but words do have an effect. And so when somebody's speaking wickedly, deceitfully against you, uh, David says, encircling me with hate, attacking me without cause. Uh, this is this is hard stuff. And it, it, it's not like David can just ignore it because this, this is one thing that we see in the explanation to the Eighth Commandment and and a lot of places throughout the scriptures that your reputation matters and people, what people say about you matters for so many different reasons. And so if you don't, it's not only that not having support of somebody, but if you have somebody who's speaking actively against you, it can cause real harm and real danger. Not to mention the fact that this juxtaposed with the silent God of verse one makes it extra powerful because God isn't saying anything, it seems like to David, and yet the people who are saying stuff are the ones who are lying, deceiving, and being hateful. 
Mm. Well, and, and that makes what he says then at the end of verse four very powerful, that in this situation where all he's hearing, it seems, are the accusations, which are false and destroying his reputation, and he's not hearing God, God is seeming silent to him, yet what does David do in verse four? I give myself to prayer. That's a powerful image. It is. And, and, and these verses tie themselves so well then with what Jesus himself went through. So we see here, David, you know, he has no other remedy than to go to God in prayer. So we see the faith in action. David has no one else to turn to. Well, what happens to Jesus? Jesus is surrounded by lying tongues. He has false witnesses who come against him during his trials, during his arrest. Uh, He's literally surrounded by people who are striking him, mocking him, etc. And yet, what do we see Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right before his passion, he's giving himself to prayer. Uh, The anxiety is so bad that Luke tells us that he's sweating drops of blood, and yet he has nowhere else to go but to his Father. And the same is true then of his crucifixion. When Jesus is on the cross, we see him quoting the psalm. So again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And others, but of course, at the end too, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. We see this utter faith, this trust in God, that even as Jesus is dying, he's giving himself to prayer. So certainly for David, uh, you know, not perfectly like our Lord Jesus, but we see the faith here. We see that this really is bad, and yet we can hold that intention in tension with himself praying and having faith in a God who can hear him and will ultimately bring him justice. Uh, one of the things that I, I do find helpful about these first five verses is the description that that David gives of the situation against him, and and then the way that it certainly connects to the passion of our Lord. It, as as I was reading the whole Psalm, you know, and we'll talk about the imprecatory verses here in some detail because there are quite a few of them. But what really stood out to me is not so much those, but the great suffering that was being endured by David, and then thinking about how that speaks to the the Lord's suffering. You know these. Uh, the I think the the helpful thing is that these imprecatory verses are not being prayed in a situation where it's not like somebody just cut David off in traffic and he's cursed. You know, like <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. this is really bad. What what I mean that's such a such a mild way of putting it too. This is difficult, difficult suffering that David is enduring, and then even more so our Lord. That's what gives rise to the the prayers that we see in, in verses six and following. Right. Yeah, this is not this is not getting cut off in traffic. This is not, you know, somebody made a passive aggressive mark at me or remark to right. me. Yeah. This this is real danger and we see again to go to Absalom, David fled Jerusalem. His life was in danger. So David faced any number of real terrible dangerous situations and so again this could be any any number of those. And yet He's going to God for justice. He's going to God in prayer. He's going to God in praise, knowing that the wicked men who are against him, the lying tongues that are speaking against him, the, the hatred that's surrounding him, God's going to take care of that. Mm, that's right. And I think that's one one thing that we always should emphasize when we're talking about the imprecatory Psalms and even thinking about ways that we would include these in our own prayers is that part of, although they, they are going to sound harsh and certainly did as we read them, it is letting go of that desire for vengeance that we may have in receiving such evil and actually giving it to God for him to do justice. And I think it's, you know, when we hear the word vengeance, I think 
I think the the helpful term is to think about God's justice being done. Not that he doesn't, I mean, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right. But but this is God actually setting things right. And and these imprecatory psalms come out of a desire for God to do that and let go of my own desire to to get vengeance or just get back at someone. Exactly. And you see these words uh, occur together quite often throughout the scriptures, uh, justice and righteousness. And I think mm. the sense of those together, especially, is that God is going to make things right, which means, again, number one, for the people that have been wronged, for God's holy people, like David or like the martyrs, is that he's going to vindicate them. Most of all, of course, we see that in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the vindication of God's people in one person, God's holy son. That, And this is what Peter does over and over. We are his witnesses. We are his witnesses. God raised him from the dead. You know, you crucified him, but God raised him. And so the, the flip side of that, again, too, is that if God really is a God of love and salvation and justice, there will be punishment. There will be judgment on those who have persisted in that, particularly against God's people. So the more imprecatory verses start in verse six, where he says, appoint a wicked man against him and, and continues for quite some time. Begin to, to take us into David's prayer there. Yeah. You know, it's hard to, to really wrap our minds around exactly what this would mean, but uh, some of the clues might be in, so like the, the word for accuser here is, is the word Satan. So the word that's translated as Satan. And we know the little that we know about Satan is that he seemed to be sort of this, this prosecutor, this accuser of God. So God's sort of man of justice, if you will. And this accuser would be then somebody who actually is bringing about what's real. And what I mean by that is the people that, that harm God's people usually can hide behind something in this life. So they can hide behind their money, their position, uh, the safety of the power of their weapons or whatever it is. But what this accuser does then at the right hand of David is to actually, um, or at his at the, at the right hand of the people who are accusing, is that they're actually bringing to light that which has been hidden in the dark. So we see in the New Testament, of course, that all things are going to be brought to light. Nothing will be hidden. Mm. And what God is doing even now, though, we see this in Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about how God has left people no excuse for not believing in him, no excuse for not following natural law, no excuse for living outside of his will. And yet people turn against him and they have ever since Adam and Eve. So what does God eventually do? Even in this life, he gives them up to their passions, which can include anything from, you know, the sexual perversions that Paul lists in Romans 1, or even to the greed and idolatry and the violence that we see throughout the world, throughout history. He gives people over to sin. And so essentially by giving them over to these these sins and these passions and this this wickedness, they end up getting what they deserve just as much as, as Jesus can say, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, right? So we can see already the beginning of that justice in this world, but there's going to be a time, and this is what we look forward to as Christians, the hope that we have, that many of us will not see the justice that God brings about right now, but we will see it when Jesus returns and brings all things to light. 
So those first couple of verses in this section have that trial sort of context, the idea of an accuser and being tried and a guilty verdict. What about the last part of verse seven, let his prayer be counted as sin? What's what's that? Yeah, it's kind of strange in a way that we probably wouldn't speak or pray. And yet I think what we can gather from this is that throughout the scriptures, one of the the things that God speaks against the most is going through the motions. Mm. So we have these people that are acting wickedly, speaking evilly against David. And yet, what do they turn around and do? They apparently go to God in prayer. So what David is asking for is that they're going through the motions, be seen for what it is. We have uh, an instance of this in Isaiah 64, for example, where Isaiah laments that even you know these outwardly righteous behaviors, all of our good works are like polluted rags. Now that that's true, I suppose, on some level of all of, for all of us that we know as Lutherans that we don't earn our our forgiveness, we don't earn our salvation, and so anything that we would bring to God is like a polluted rag. But even more so for these evil doers, that they can hide their evil and their wickedness, or or pretend as if they're doing a holy thing by doing whatever they're doing. And yet when they when they turn around and go through the motions in prayer or in worship or whatever for God, God will see through that. And that's essentially, I think, what David is asking for, that their prayers and their worship be counted as the sin that it is. So I, I think maybe, or it might be similar to the way Jesus speaks to the scribes and Pharisees when he says, woe to them. You know, right. you you clean the outside, but inside are full of greed. That that sort of hypocrisy, let his prayer be counted as sin. Woe to you, because outside you look holy because you're praying, but inside you're filled with this malice and deceit, which again is being shown here to David in these false accusations. We do need to, to take a break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to us talking with Pastor Mark Squire this morning about Psalm 109. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 25th. We're studying Psalm 109 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, we've been going through Psalm 109, the various imprecations that are there. In verse 8, we come to the verse that St. Peter quotes in Acts chapter 1. How does St. Peter apply this psalm? 
Yeah, he quotes this in Acts 1, verse 20. And Acts chapter 1, the second half of it, is the account of the replacement of Judas. So we have this or a parenthetical statement that seems to be written down by Luke that explains what happened to Judas, that he you know, fell headlong and his bowels burst out because he had, had hung himself. Just this terrible, tragic situation. And yet what Peter does in his speech is that he says, he quotes Psalm 109 and says, let another take his office, which they then bring about these names of people that can make the 12 whole again, and Matthias gets chosen by Lot. Uh, but yeah, Judas again comes up here with, you know, he's he's somebody that Jesus chose to be in the office of apostle, and yet he betrayed Jesus, and then, as Peter said, went to his own place. So to keep the 12, the 12, another takes his office. Yeah, and and again, I think seeing how it's fulfilled in Judas is a reminder of of the enemy against whom these imprecations are prayed. We're we're not talking about someone who just sort of you know made you mad on one occasion. Right. We're we're talking here about this is Judas. This is applied to. I find it striking, and I don't know if you have any insight on this, Pastor Squire. That I noticed in verses one through five, David speaks of his enemies in the plural. They mm-hmm. encircle me. And then starting in verse six, he starts to speak about, it seems, one in particular. Now, he does come back to a, a plural later in this section. And I didn't I didn't know if there was anything there about the, the switch to singular in these first couple imprecations. If you don't know either, that's fine. But it stood out to me. Yeah, it's, it's noticeable, isn't it? And I think it makes it all the more powerful. Again, if you consider this in terms of Judas as a betrayer yeah. of Jesus, he sort of encapsulates in one person all those who have been against him. So for Jesus' whole ministry of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, chief priests, and all these people, right? And yet Judas is the one who actually is the catalyst for his betrayal, his arrest, his passion, his death. In a similar way, I think, you know, it reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians 6 to kind of tie this together with something you just said a little bit earlier too about our enemies not being or these people that cut us off or do these little things against us. But our enemies are, are not even of this world, but are, are mm-hmm. the, the ones who are in the powers of the air, Paul says. You know, we're not fighting against mm-hmm. flesh and blood. And I think Judas becomes sort of a stand-in here for the great enemy of God, that is to say Satan. You know, there, there are enemies of God. There are people that have fought against his, his chosen people. There are, you know, demons and spirits that are opposed to God. And yet, really, we can, I think, bring this down to Satan being the leader of this. And he becomes mm-hmm. the symbol for all that is opposed to God and rebelling against him. And so I, I think I see some of that here. That's, that's certainly no authoritative exegesis or anything. But I think it it becomes powerful to put a face to to the they, to the them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I think that's helpful, and and I appreciate the connection you made to what Paul writes in Ephesians six. I think that's particularly helpful as we think about the imprecatory psalms and the the true enemy who stands behind those who would attack the church still today. I, that's a very helpful comment. So, as these imprecations continue, it seems like there's a bit of an escalation all the way through about verse fifteen, and and it's not like it ends there, but it, there's a really an escalation in this section. Give us some of the the highlights that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, I'm looking through this, I thought this is this is extreme. This is offensive to our modern ears that 
you have not simply somebody taking his office, but may his children be fatherless, may his wife be a widow, may his children wander about and beg, uh, may the creditor seize all that he has. I mean, this is this is not just one person, but it's the person's family. It's the person's children, for heaven's sake. And that's that's something it's hard for us really to to wrap our minds around or even think about how can I even pray this or how, how do I even understand this? Because, of course, somebody is judged for their own sin, right? And yet we also know, and you know, to tie this together with some of the rest of the Old Testament, that God shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him. But we have this sense too, that there is this, the judgment of somebody affects their family. So we see this, you know, when, uh, you know, Korah's rebellion, for example, when the earth opens up, it wasn't just Korah and some priests, but it was, it was their families too, which again, we, we can find offensive or extreme. And yet, you know, our actions have effect, have, have effects on other people. And I think one of the judgments here, one of the, the uh, things that David is praying for against his enemy is that this won't continue. And I think that makes itself tangible then in the family. This isn't going to be passed on from generation to generation. He wants it to stop. And I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's helpful. What? How do we? I mean, to try to kind of wrap this mini section of imprecations up before we move into the next one. How do I mean? How do we tie this all together? What What's going on with these imprecations? Yeah, I think again, what David is doing is calling for justice, and he he does this in you know sort of extreme, tangible ways. But we can see that God sometimes does begin His justice toward evildoers in this life. But it's really what we're looking forward to on the last day. So to tie this together, you know, for Christians looking forward that we see that God's justice will finally be seen on that great and final day when when Jesus will return to separate the sheep and the goats, to vindicate his chosen ones on the one hand, like he's already done with his son, but then to send off in judgment and condemnation those who have turned against him, those who have harmed his chosen ones. And these tangible examples, I think, become the symbols of that judgment. Now, starting in verse 16, then, it we don't lose the imprecations entirely, but it does seem to shift focus again now back to what this false accuser is doing, that he did not remember to show kindness. And <laughs> it looks like, it looks like, you're telling me that that Luther thinks it gets easier from verse 16 and following. Is that correct? Yeah, this I don't know what to do with this. This is young Luther, so maybe I'll just write it off as that. But you know, Luther's first um, uh, uh, lectures on the Psalms from the mid 1510s. Uh, after verse 16, he says, just sort of parenthetically, "Oh, the rest will be easy." And I just kind of laughed at that. Like, there's nothing easy about the imprecatory Psalms. Um, but yeah, you see this shift from from simply calling for these imprecations, like you say, but but also giving the basis for them, right? So he pursued the poor and the needy. He didn't remember to show kindness. And not to belabor the point of connecting this to Judas, but you see in John chapter 12 that John actually makes this very point about Judas that none of the other gospel writers make. That is to say that he lists Judas as the keeper of the purse, but 
Um, he says, uh, Judas had questioned why Mary was anointing Jesus at Bethany with this expensive ointment. And John writes, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so whoever David has in mind here, you know, it's somebody who has no concern for people that God has concern for. And I think that's really the point. God loves the poor and the needy. He, he lifts up the lowly. We have the, the beautiful Magnifica, the Song of Mary, where she sings of all of this. You know, and, and it's the high and the mighty, the proud, the, the wicked that he brings down. And so when you, when he goes, when David goes through these, this, these lists of, well, what is it actually that, that this person or these people have done? And it's, it's tangible in that we can empathize with people who are being taken advantage of. Uh, It's not just David, I I guess, is what this comes down to. It's that these people or this person, uh, they've continued to, to take advantage of the people that they should be loving. Hmm. What's the imagery that shows up in, in verses 18 and 19? This It sounds like clothing image, but then soaking into his body? Yeah, it's kind of strange. It's it's not so much maybe imagery that we would use in our language and culture, but I think it's it's especially powerful because we, we do have the image of being clothed throughout Scripture, and the positive side of this would be you know, Paul saying that we're clothed with Christ in baptism, for example. We're wrapped in this this white robe of righteousness that's been washed with the blood of the Lamb. You know, we see that in Revelation as well. But this this idea of being clothed then with cursing, letting it soak into the body, uh, it, it's this, I think, this weightiness. I think it's this permanence, something that's been stained and won't go away. So it's like this person, these people have done these terrible things. will let this sin stain them and wrap them up forever. And that's, I think, especially powerful. Now, in verse 21, we come back to more of what David was praying toward the beginning. How does, how does the psalm turn in that verse? So here in these verses, about five verses or so, we see David returning to a call to God for vindication. So he's moved on now from calling for justice in these tangible ways against the enemies, but the flip side of the coin, so justice for David himself, that is to say vindication, salvation, uh, specifically because of David's experiences that he's experienced wrong and that he's become this poor and needy person. I, what strikes me in, in verse 21 as he makes this turn is that when he asks God to help him, he, he asks him to do it for the sake of the Lord's own name and for the sake of the Lord's steadfast love. You know, that doesn't take away from what he said earlier, that these attacks are coming on him without cause. But when it when puts, push comes to shove, he asks the Lord to do something because of who the Lord is and right. not so much because of who David is. Yeah, because it's always a little dicey. And there's actually, there's a few instances of the Psalms of David and and perhaps some of the other psalmists saying something like, well, save me because of my innocence. And certainly our our Lutheran law gospel ears kind of perk up and we wonder, well, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? Right. Yeah. right. But here, yeah, he's not appealing so much for himself and his innocence, but to God. And I think 
ultimately, of course, this is all we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy and the steadfast love of God, because God is a God who brings justice uh, in part, in large part, because it brings glory and honor to his name. So a loving God, again, I said this earlier, but a loving God cannot be one who brings no justice. You know, if we really believe in a loving and all-powerful God, he will make things right at some point. And so David appeals to the steadfast love of the Lord, this this love that never ends, this love that is faithful, the love that we see in his working with his people throughout history from you know, saving Noah in the flood to his promise to Abraham that was fulfilled to being with Joseph to carrying the people of Israel out of Egypt to fighting for them and on and on and on and on. And of course, the faithfulness of that he shows to his son, Jesus Christ, by, by raising him from the dead. But when you think, what am I going to appeal to when I need God? Well, I can't really offer him anything. I have to throw myself on his mercy and his faithfulness. And I think like you said earlier, Pastor Apple, you know, calling God to account to to be faithful to his promises. Yeah. Well, and I think the the thing that comes to my mind, and maybe it's because we just finished reading the book of Acts here on Sharper Iron, but in the in the context of these imprecatory psalms where David says, you know, help me for your name's sake, I'm reminded of the way that when Jesus comes to Saul on the road to Damascus and he, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That Saul in hating the church was actually hating and persecuting Jesus. And that, that identification of the Lord with his people and the great comfort that it would, I mean, that, that you get out of that chapter, Acts chapter nine, maybe something similar is happening here in David's prayer that he's asking the Lord to you know, identify with me according to your own name as you've promised to do. I, I, I don't know, that that helps me hold this together a little bit. And I, it, the imprecations then aren't quite as shocking, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this has to, again, as, as Bonhoeffer so eloquently points out in his little Psalm prayer book, that this has to be centered in Jesus Christ. So the tangible, the, the, probably the, the best example of this is, like you said, Acts chapter 9, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul could have said, well, what do you mean I'm persecuting you? Right? But it, it's right. it's easily understood that, just like Jesus said, if you, whatever you do to one of the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. And that includes persecution. So when we read a psalm like this, this isn't just about David. This isn't just about me, for example, or you. And that's where, again, in our American context, we so easily make everything so individualistic, so personal. It's about me and my suffering. And yet we forget that we're connected to Christ with all of it, right? So the good and the bad, that is to say, just as Christ suffered, we will suffer too. But just as he was vindicated, we will be vindicated if we are in him. Hmm. Now, this section, verses 21 through 25, that's another place, I think, in the psalm where you really can see some of the parallels to our Lord's passion. Absolutely. I mean, you have some of the similar language in Isaiah and in the gospel. So Isaiah 52 and 53, probably uh, the most famous, most well-known to us about Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, But the poor and the needy, again, this isn't just so much like I don't have a lot of money, but very lowly, uh, gone like a shadow at evening. You think about the darkness of Good Friday, Uh, The fasting, well, so Jesus fasted for 40 days, but even more on the cross, my body has become gaunt with no fat. Mm. 
and I think particularly verse 25, where you see people who are literally accusing him, scorning him, and as the gospel writers say, they're, they're wagging their heads, which you have the connection then back also to Psalm 22, verse 6. And I don't, I don't know how you can read verses 22 to 25 and not see the passion and crucifixion and death of really the one who suffered most, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think I think you have to see that. And again, that that's very helpful. It puts these imprecations into that context. And of course, then Christ's own prayer from the cross, which we we heard in Luke recently, you know, Father, forgive them, mm-hmm. makes that all the more striking in, in that context. Now, as as Psalm 109 continues into verse 26, more more prayers for help. What what else do we see in this psalm? Yeah, so he's kind of wrapping up his calls for justice here. He continues to appeal to God's love uh, to God's history, as it were, that he saves people. But letting God take control of this, that is to say, God is the one who brings justice. Vengeance is his. Uh, He will be the one to condemn. He will be the one to save. So the basis for, for his call for justice here is God's love. And that results in different things for different people. So for the righteous, for God's people, they get salvation because of God's love and justice. Uh, but the wicked, those who are dishonoring, those who are cursing, God is going to bring condemnation uh, and justice. So you have this uh, this juxtaposition of cursing and blessing, of uh, coming down and arising and so forth, that that those who are doing the the calling down of curses right now, well, it's they're going to be cursed. And those who are are being cursed right now unjustly are the ones who are going to be blessed. Is that's what that's what's behind in verse twenty eight? Then let them curse, but you will bless you. you they're going to do their thing, O Lord, but you do yeah. yours. Yeah, it's kind of it's going to be. We can't we can't take matters into our own hands and become vigilantes. We can't say, oh well, they're they're cursing, so let's kill them and stop it. You know that sounds zealous, that sounds holy, and yet it's God's justice that matters not my justice not my stopping sin i'm i'm just committing the sin of adam and eve then i'm i'm knowing good and evil apart from god's will and god has told me don't kill so and this i think i i really like this connection with this verse then back to verse one where you have this silence of god Mm. and the wicked mouths which are open but here you have them cursing but god now blessing so god is opening his mouth then in blessing and in honor and in glory and salvation for his people, which is you know, how Peter talks then in, in 1 Peter 2, that when God speaks to his people, the, these are the things that they will receive, not what they're getting now, the dishonor and, and the shame, but, but the honor and the glory and the salvation uh, that comes from being in Jesus Christ. So God's silence then becomes resolved here. And then I, I think it, it even, as the psalm concludes, you come back to first the first verse yet again, the God of my praise, that's how this psalm ends, which is, it, it's always so striking on the psalms. It doesn't always happen this way, but so often the, the deep depths of suffering and affliction, and yet toward the end, here comes this beautiful praise. Absolutely. And that's where, again, it's it becomes... Not easy, but maybe easier to hold these things in tension that, yes, there is suffering, there is affliction, people are going to curse because we're in Christ. And yet, in the same token, 
we can open our mouths like, for example, Paul and Silas in prison. What did they do while they were in chains? They sang hymns and and praises Mm -hmm. to God, so much so that the guards and the prisoners heard them. So certainly David, even in the midst of all this, can open his mouth in thanks and in praise because of God's faithfulness, because of his coming salvation in Jesus Christ. In the second half of verse 30, where David says, I will praise him in the midst of the throng. Mm. Now, I, I don't, is the the throng, I would think, would be the church or the other faithful ones, which is a, you think about how alone David has seemed throughout the yeah. psalm, and yet by the end he recognizes, no, I'm, I'm still a part of this church, and there's some strength in that. Right, absolutely. And that's where, again, these these songs and these prayers are not meant simply to be prayed and understood as individuals, but in the body of Christ. God has brought us into the body of his son, Jesus Christ, the church. We shouldn't neglect to meet together. We bear one another's burdens, as we hear in Galatians 6. Uh, when one rejoices, all rejoice together. When one suffers, all suffer together. I mean, all of these different places where these these praises happen among God's people. And so David goes probably from being alone, again, to connect to Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think about the loneliness of David or of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, well, what does Jesus do when he's raised from the dead? Well, he shows himself to people, right? It's not as if he just is raised from the dead and immediately ascends into heaven. You have Jesus among his chosen people, the church. So in the same way, when we sing praises to God, even and especially in the midst of affliction and suffering, we're going to do so together because we're in the body of Christ. I have about five minutes here to, to reflect on this psalm, which, as we've said, is, is a difficult at many sections to read, to hear, and, and I think especially to pray. So you've mentioned Bonhaver's book on a couple of occasions, and we've talked about you know holding this together in what we see in Christ. Mm-hmm. How, how do you see Psalm 109? functioning in our lives of, of prayer as Christians? Well, the first way, and, and Bonhaver speaks about this kind of early in his book, is that we pray not only alone, as Jesus commands us to do, you know, go to your, your closet and close the door and pray to your Father in heaven, not only with the church, that is to say corporately, so when we gather for worship or in Bible study or whatever, but the fact is that when we pray, especially together, we're praying with Jesus Christ. And it might sound strange or kind of hard to understand, but what we're really saying is that Jesus is the one, and Bonhoeffer says, who took human weakness in his own flesh and poured out his heart for all humanity. So he knows the torment, the pain, the guilt, the death more deeply than we do, Bonhoeffer says, which is a comfort that comes right from the scriptures. We have a high priest who knows every temptation, every suffering that we have or will experience. And so our prayers then are not said alone. They're said with Jesus Christ, who's gone through this and who's already been vindicated. So that's one really important way that you know we understand praying a psalm like this or any imprecatory psalm, that we're praying it with Jesus. So there's a, there's a certain comfort there. I, th- I think, too, that as you've mentioned several times, these enemies are not the enemies of this world, but what's, what stands behind 
any of that. So Satan and his minions, the flesh, the world, our sinful nature, all these things that that fight against God and want to bring us to damnation, to want to bring us to despair. And so it's not a matter of, of personal conflict, for example. It's not up to us to take vengeance into our own hands, but to leave that up to God. And what God has done already, and this is again a comfort for us, that God has already shown us his justice. That is to say, he laid the sins of the world on the shoulders of Jesus. So it's at the cross that we see God bringing justice by condemning sin in the body of Christ and then bringing vindication on the day of his resurrection. I mean, Jesus already bore all of this. It's not as if we want, like none of us wants anybody to die or be harmed, even for their evil deeds. And this is, again, the tension of Jesus saying, pray for your enemies and love your enemies and all these sorts of things. We want them to repent. We want God to save them. And so we see how God's justice is already meted out on Jesus on the cross, where God has actually done what what Jesus prays for, you know, with these psalms mm-hmm. that that the enemies are are judged. And God did that in Christ. Now, does that mean there won't be any judgment at the end? Well, of course not, because there are some who reject that. And as as the author of Hebrews says in chapter ten, you know, once you've heard this, there's no sacrifice left, and you're essentially trampling on the blood of the Son of God which is just one of the most awful images in the, in the entirety of the scripture. But God takes sin seriously. And Bonhoeffer makes this point that we see that on the cross. Um, and uh, we, we know that God is a God of love and a God of justice. Yeah. Well, and, and tying that together in the cross, I think is the key that, that in the cross, all of this imprecation was carried out on Jesus, mm-hmm. which then brings, I mean, to go back to that idea of cursing and blessing, that brings God's blessing upon us. Right. Paul, Paul uses that language in Galatians 3, that Christ became the curse for us yes. so that we would be the receive the blessing of God. And that's where, I mean, I think recognizing that all this comes in into fulfillment with Christ on the cross, that's where we can start to get a, a handle on these imprecatory psalms and even begin to use them in our own prayers as, as we pray them, as you said, with Jesus. Right. Yeah, our, our prayers should always lead us to the cross of Christ. I mean, what else would Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that, you know, I, I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not as if Jesus is still dead on the cross, but he's alive, but, but he was crucified. And that's where God shows his love and his justice that he gave his son for us. That's right. Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa, helping us today with Psalm 109. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. God is a God of love and justice. He does both for us. On the cross of Christ, his justice and love came together as all these imprecations were carried about on Christ so that you and I receive God's blessing. And now we pray these Psalms together with our Lord Jesus. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.